0: The first Bible reading is from the 51st Psalm and uh, beginning at the first verse, and it's a Psalm of David, and the context is, it's when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and David responds this way. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquity. And the second reading is from the 19th chapter of the Gospel, according to St Luke, in the beginning of the first verse. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Justin. Justin. Um you could maybe hold those passages uh, open on your lap because uh, there are some wonderful lines and ideas in there that I, that I hope to get to. You know, e- each time I've uh, come and preached here over the last 12 months, I've focused on uh, one of the dimensions of the life of Jesus that you find in the original sources, uh, the sources written by the Christians, of course, but also the sources Uh, by those who weren't Christians and still wrote about Jesus. For example, um, uh, sometime last year, I spoke about Jesus' teacher and and tried to unpack the way in which Jesus' teaching so influenced the West that it became uh, the ethical assumption of uh, even the secular West to this day. We looked at Jesus as healer and I tried to deal with the scientific problem of can we believe in miracles, but also the historical data that we have for Jesus as a healer. And mostly though, I landed on the way Jesus' healings takes us to one of the key promises of the whole Bible, that God pledges to mend all things. And we see glimpses of it in the healings of Jesus. I also looked at Jesus as Christ in one of those messages. uh, And I pointed out that uh, contrary to my, Uh, knowledge when I was young. This is not a surname. Uh, Jesus Christ is not like John Dixon. It it is, in fact, the most prestigious title in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day. And we also saw Jesus as God. Um, This is a hard one for many to get their heads around. The Jesus many of us respect, the teacher we kind of approve of, also said crazy things like, If you have seen me, you have seen God. Jesus, the embodiment of the Creator. I also tackled perhaps the most uh, unpopular dimension of Jesus. That is, his role as judge. As unpopular as it is, it is everywhere in the Gospels that Jesus said he would be the judge of the world that the thoughts and words and deeds of human beings that are unjust will be brought to account. Well, today, um, I want to offer another aspect of Jesus' life. That is, in a way, the contradiction of Jesus as judge. It may seem to be the contradiction anyway. It is the curious theme of Jesus as friend, friend. There is a passage in Scripture that accuses Jesus, criticizes Him for being a friend to the wrong kinds of people. Uh, I'll reflect on this again later, but people accused Him of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And we're gonna see one of those friendships in the passage just just read to us. It turns out that uh, those we might have thought were first in line for the judgment of God, were Jesus' favorite dinner guests. There's something very special, very close to the heart of the Christian faith in this fact. And I first learnt about this theme, the easy way. Um, Some of us learn it the hard way. I learned it the easy way because my sample of a Christian at 16 years of age, was basically one, and it was my scripture teacher, whom I've mentioned many times from this pulpit, who was a beautiful example of the Friend of Sinners. Now she did the normal thing of volunteering to teach at Mossman High faithfully, as we were class clowns and sometimes insulted her and certainly insulted her religion. But she kept on coming, kept on being sweet, kept on being funny, kept on being smart. And one day she wrote her address address on the blackboard, back when there were blackboards instead of whiteboards, or computer boards now, wrote her address and said, you're all welcome Friday afternoons after school to my home uh, for hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones. Now, I, I need to stop and say I don't recommend this because it would be illegal nowadays, okay? Uh, but in the mid-80s, it, it, was, it was plausible. And um, she invited us to her home and we turned up at her home, sometimes five of us, sometimes 20 of us to eat her hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones for weeks, months. It ended up being A couple of years and some of us were the worst sinners in the school Uh, not just the class clown the school bully a drug addict uh, a young man with a string of break and enters to his name in her home week after week week after week one week we stole her vcr player you know the precursor to the dvd and uh the next week she hardly mentioned it she just said that she has lost her VCR player. And if any of us hear where it might be, you know, it'd be lovely to hear. We knew exactly who'd taken it, and he'd sold it for drug money. But she kept on inviting us back. Weekend, sorry, week after week after week. She embodied one of the most striking themes of Jesus, the friend of sinners. And as a result of that, about five of us, godless 16-year-olds, became Christians, and three of us from the one class ended up becoming full-time ministers through her friendship with sinners. Jesus was famous, infamous, for being the friend of sinners, for inviting Himself to their homes, making sure He sat down at the dinner table, with those classed the sinners. Now, we'll get to our passage um, of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, in, in a moment, but let me wind back and say something that I think is important for us to get the significance of this passage. I want to say something about the status of sinners in Jesus' day. Because I'm well aware that as soon as I say sinner, some of you will be thinking, oh, that's silly Christian jargon. Or, or we we so trivialize sinner, it's, you know, it's just, you know, someone who loves chocolate too much. Oh, I'm a sinner. You know, we've so trivialized and downplayed the word, we don't get it. But it was a serious, stinging tag in Jesus' day. Sinners were not necessarily all sort of the obviously immoral, murderers and thieves and prostitutes and so on, it really just referred to those who lived in a way contrary to the wisdom of God. It could just as easily be a very wealthy person who neglected the poor. That would be a sinner. It could be someone who neglected going to synagogue in in Jesus' wider Jewish culture, who, who therefore rejected the worship of God. It could be someone who did close dealings with the Roman occupiers. These would all be sinners. Sinners were the immoral and irreligious in a pretty moral and religious culture. And contact with sinners, physical contact with sinners, was therefore heavily regulated um, who you dealt with really mattered in a way that's quite confusing to our culture. Being merely in the presence of a sinner, going into their home or a sinner coming into your home was ruled out for the pure. And we know this from a, from a great number of texts from the period which reveal the sort of the culture in which Jesus lived. Here is one such text from antiquity called Mishnah Torahot, purities. Concerning tax collectors who enter your house, the house is unclean. Concerning thieves who enter the house, only the place trodden by the feet of the thieves is unclean. In other words, tax collectors are worse than thieves. And of course, if a Gentile is with them, that is a, a non-Jew, someone of the nations, um, everything is unclean. Everything is unclean. Sharing meals with such people was especially objectionable because, again, unlike today, sharing a meal was seen as deeply spiritual. That is, you normally only sat down at the meal table with those you approved of, okay? Um, Here's a New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg from Denver, in his whole book on this topic, Ancient Judaism viewed mealtimes as important occasions for drawing boundaries. Dining created an intimate setting in which one nurtured friendship with the right kind of people, unclean people, and objects constantly threatened to corrupt God's holy elect nation and individuals within it. Like literal physical disease, we may think of ritual impurity as contagious. And here's the key thought. In Jesus' day, sin was thought to be a contagion, a kind of virus, and a key transmitter of the contagion was mealtime. Now, in light of all of that, Jesus deliberately decision to eat with sinners was a great scandal. So, let me turn to this theme we find in the Gospels of Jesus as the friend of sinners. He regularly wined and dined with those known to be the sinners. We could go to Mark's Gospel and find Jesus having dinner at Levi's house. Levi was another tax collector. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because they have in mind that text from Mishnah Torahot. They're thinking, why does he eat with them when that conveys their sin onto him? Or consider this text from uh, Matthew's Gospel. Jesus said... John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, he was an ascetic, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, here's that criticism I mentioned earlier, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That might, might sound like a cool insult all these years later. We might think it's wonderful that Jesus was the friend of sinners, but to really get the point of this, You need to understand this is a stinging insult of Jesus. And it was central to His mission, as our passage from Luke's Gospel uh, makes plain. Jesus enters uh, Jericho, quite a large town in, uh, in Jesus' day. And we're told there's this man called Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, he's also short Right? Nothing wrong with that. And he had to climb a tree to see what was going on, and Jesus coming up. And, 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 the, and the key thing in the first scene of this story is that Jesus stops and tells Zacchaeus to come down, and Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus's home. Jesus makes the move. That's the important thing to notice. Why? And people are asking why. Uh, In fact, we're told that all the people, right down the bottom there, uh, all the people who saw this began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jericho was a um, wealthy resort town. It was actually one of the royal towns. Um, Herod the Great. had had turned it into one of the palace towns. It was a very important swish kind of town. And the chief tax collector was one of the wealthiest, most powerful people in the town. I point this out because Zacchaeus is not this ostracised outsider on the margins of society. No, no, he, he was an opulent controller within society. I reckon we might have muttered that Jesus chose him of all the people in Jericho to spend the afternoon with. And when I reflect on this, and there are quite a number of stories like this, I'm reminded God doesn't just love the marginalised outsider sinner, right? The sinner we can feel a bit sentimental about, maybe a bit patronizing about. The sympathetic sinner. No. God even loves the arrogant, opulent, self-confident sinner. And wants them. Wants to connect with them. And Jesus embodied that love in his meals. With all of the risk to his reputation that, that that involved. Why did he do it? Not just because he's like this sort of lefty, liberal-minded, you know, anything-goes kind of personality. That doesn't really capture Jesus. It's because he wanted to save, save sinners. And our text makes this crystal clear. Notice Zacchaeus felt the impact of Jesus' initiative, of Jesus' gracious welcoming of him. And we're told that he stands up and he says, look, I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor now, and, and if I've swindled anyone, right, which he certainly must have as a tax collector, I'm going to repay four times. It's important to notice the order Of the story. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus seeks him out. Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus's table. Jesus is the one who initiates friendship and then Zacchaeus responds with this lavish attempt to make amends. I point this out because so many of us um, in wider society, anyway, imagine that religion is about the reverse of that, that it's about, you know, people choosing to to be good, to try and make amends, and then maybe if you've done enough, God will invite you to his table, as it were. God will uh, be friends with you. And, and, And that may be how other religions work. It is not what Jesus taught. It's not how Christianity functions. Christianity says, grace first. And this prompts the response that we see. This was uh, put beautifully in one of the finest historical books about Jesus ever written Uh, by Ben F. Meyer, you maybe never heard of him. He's a professor for many years at McMaster University in Canada. A stunning uh, scholar. And at one point in his chapter on Jesus' Meals with Sinners, because this is a very large discussion point in academia, he writes these words that sort of pop out of the page, for me anyway. The new thing in the act of Jesus was that he reversed the normal religious structure he sought communion first, conversion second. His table fellowship with sinners implied no acceptance of their sins, but in a world in which sinners stood inescapably condemned, Jesus' openness to them was irresistible. Contact triggered repentance. Conversion flowered from community from Communion. Nothing could have dramatized the free grace and the present realization of God's saving act more effectively than this unheard of initiative towards sinners. Indeed, all scholars will acknowledge we have no figure in antiquity who was known for this kind of behavior seeking out the immoral and dining with them. I could cite you, stoic philosophers saying you must not do that. Jewish rabbis saying the same. And Jesus bursts through and insists on communion first, conversion second. And and that line that, that Jesus was bringing God's saving act into the present, is so true to the text that's before us today. The climax of which has Jesus say this, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. That just means a member of God's family. For the son of man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Now this language of salvation I guess, like the language of sin, has been caricatured and cliched in our modern context. It isn't just jargon for becoming a Christian. You know, you hear American, American Christians, in particular, say, you know, I'm saved, or the day I was saved. And really, they, all they mean is um, the day I became Christian or something, right? I'm not picking on American Christians, Laurel. But it is, it's very common, parlance. But actually, that diminishes the actual meaning. It means rescued from judgment. Saved actually means what what it really means, and that is rescued. Jesus' message wasn't that we're all fine just as we are. No, his message was that we could all be rescued from the coming judgment, when our whole lives will be laid bare, where we are required to give an account where we will endure the punishment of a just God, we can be saved from that, is Jesus' language. And the clearest evidence of how seriously he meant all this isn't actually his meals. It is, of course, his death and resurrection. You know, it wasn't the church who invented the idea that Jesus died on a cross for our sins, right? That did not come from the apostles. It came from Jesus, who at His last supper took the wine cup and made it crystal clear that He was giving His blood the next day, poured out for the forgiveness of sins, Ultimately, it's through his death and resurrection that he came to seek and to save the lost. That's how he established friendship with God for anyone who will respond. When I first was introduced to Christianity as a 16-year-old, I had no problem believing this, you know. I had no problem believing that God and his Christians really loved me, even though I, kn- I knew I had not lived God's way. Isn't that interesting? I know loads of people do. They have this idea that, you know, God and Christians are just angry with them. I didn't have that problem. And the reason, of course, was my scripture teacher, my sample of one. who who was just the most um, gracious, generous, flexible kind of person, Um, not just inviting us into a home on a regular pattern on Friday afternoons, but I remember one occasion, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you about it, when we were at a party in year 10, where we were blind drunk, and one of us more drunk than, than I'd ever seen anyone, even to this day, And he, Daniel, begged us not to take him home to his strict father. And he wasn't coming to my place in that state. And one of us had the idea, stupid idea now on reflection, doesn't the scripture teacher live just down the road? And went, yeah, yeah. She'll look after him. What on earth were we thinking? And we turned up at her home, nearly midnight, knock on her door, Daniel in a terrible way. She opens the door. We have interrupted the end of a posh Mossman dinner party. And she doesn't bat an eyelid. She shows us straight through, out to the back of the house. She goes and gets some pyjamas from her grown-up son, um, gives them to us and and tells us to throw Daniel in the shower, put him in jammies and put him in, you know, the back of the house in one of the rooms at the back of the house and, and come get him in the morning. We did it came back about 10 or something in in the morning. And there's Daniel looking worse for wear at the kitchen table and Glenda cooking up a storm, bacon and eggs (laughs) to give to Daniel, just like their besties. I could tell you other stories, but my point is hopefully clear. She embodied something very real about Jesus Christ. When you have that kind of Christian in your life, it's actually pretty easy to believe that God and Christians love you despite your many failings. And if I'm allowed just a parenthesis for those who are already Christians here in the building, the simple question is, do we model the social flexibility of Jesus Christ. And I guess for those of us who don't know what to make of the Christian faith, I'd say, even if you don't have a Christian like that in your life, that kind of makes it easy for you to believe that God loves you despite you, you do have Jesus Christ. You do have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the biographies of Jesus, you can read them. You can get front row seats to this narrative of Christ seeking, saving the lost. In His meals, you see a picture of the friendship with God that is on offer. But of course when you get to the end of the gospels and you read about his death and his resurrection you realize that that is where that friendship becomes possible because that's where jesus takes into himself my sins so i'm forgiven i am saved from the coming judgment I'm not a mind reader, so I don't know where you're at in all of this, but I just, I pray and I ask, will you look into it? I can imagine someone wanting to respond, even today, and, you know, I look at that psalm that Justin read opposite the Luke passage, and I think, that first stanza is probably the perfect set of words that you could say to God to enter into this friendship. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That is what Jesus' meals embodied and
0: what his death and resurrection secured.